as we transition from worshiping through song to worshiping through the preaching of God's word, I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's word to 1 Kings and read along with me as we look at our passage for today. It'll be 1 Kings chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 9 together. Uh, You can follow along in your copy of God's word on your bulletin or on the screens behind me as well. It says this, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord, the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that, the, that my lord, the king, may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shemaiah, and Rei, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside in Rogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. Let's pray together. God, we confess that it is sometimes so hard to believe that in our brokenness you really could love us and that we could be fully forgiven. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us faith, that we might take you at your word, that we would trust that your promises are true. Holy Spirit, be with Pastor Kevin as he is a messenger for you and for your word. And Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. Stephen. I sent Stephen by email the passage that he was to read uh, for this Sunday, and I almost thought I would receive his resignation in reply. Uh, That was a very challenging passage, and he did a a great job. Uh, You've got this passage on your message map if you want to get that out. And while you're doing that, let me take just a moment to thank you for being here and to say if you're watching us by video or in our overflow room, thank you for joining us. Or if you're listening by podcast, thank you for joining us as well. Um, As Stephen mentioned, we are beginning a brand new series today on the book of 1 Kings, uh, which is a book that is found in your Old Testament. However, I would like to begin this morning uh, with several verses from the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, is a letter that was written by Paul to a church in the ancient city of Corinth, and a church that was composed chiefly of Greek Christians, those who were not Jewish in their background and perhaps had little regard 
for what you and I call the Old Testament Scriptures. And while Paul very much believed that the gospel was for those who were Greek, for those who were not part of his Jewish heritage, he also understood the importance of that Jewish background. And so he reminded those in Corinth of Israel's history and the importance of studying this history as the people of God. And when Paul references this, he doesn't reference their successes. Rather, he references their failures and the why behind their failures. I want you to notice on the screen several verses from chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote this, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they, as the Israelites did. Then he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Do not grumble as some of them did. Then he again says, Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. Paul's very clear here that the struggles and the stumbles and the failures of the ancient Israelites were not pointless at all. Rather, they serve as important life lessons for us today. In other words, there is great value, incredible value in studying the Old Testament and studying it in light of what we read in the New Testament. Meaning this book that we will study, 1 Kings, and really all of the other books of the Old Testament, point us to what was hoped for and longed for by the Israelites and what you and I are able to look back on. 1 Kings specifically uh, points to a need for a king who would do what all these kings we will study could not. A king who would not make a royal mess of things. A king who was a good king. A king who was a good leader. A king who was an upright king. As we study this incredibly interesting book, we do do so remembering that it's more than just a history book. Uh, We do so remembering that it's Actually, a book that points to a future event when the arrival of King Jesus, the King of Kings, would come into our world. The King who split all of history in two. There's B.C., before Christ, and there's A.D., Latin for Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. When the King of Kings came, He was the fulfillment of all that was longed for and looked forward to by the Israelites. Here's why I tell you all of that. As much as I enjoy the academic and the historical aspects of these Old Testament books, there is a much greater purpose behind studying these than just gaining intellectual knowledge. With every king, there is the reminder of our spiritual dependence upon King Jesus. Now, having said all of that, as we introduce this book, this series, 
I want to give you just a little bit of an academic background on it. So if you're a Bible nerd like me, you will love this next section. If you're not a Bible nerd, check your Instagram account. I'll get back with you in just a moment and tell you when you can tune back in. Several things to keep in mind. Number one, First and Second Kings were originally one book. Uh, in fact, First and Second Samuel were originally one book. And they were called, First and Second Samuel, First Kingdoms, and then Kings was called Second Kingdoms. Both books were later divided simply because of the length of the books. The author of Kings is unknown, although we can say two things. One, we, with a fair amount of certainty, it was one author. There were not multiple authors. And with a fair amount of certainty, it was probably Jeremiah the prophet who wrote First and Second Kings. And without going into all the details of why, if I were a betting man, that is where I would put my money. Kings covers a period from the end of King David's reign, about 960 B.C., and David and Solomon reigned over what was called the United Kingdom. Um, and it covers, then the kingdom split, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And then Kings covers all the way through the last king of Judah, Jedekiah, uh, who reigned through the destruction of Judah in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Now, if you're really a Bible nerd, you will love this. There are other historical documents uh, that are referenced in Kings that were used by the writer of Kings when he compiled this history. Uh, three specifically are mentioned. A book called the Acts of Solomon, a book called the Annals of the Kings of Israel, and a book called the Annals of the Kings of Judah. All three of those books have been lost to history. However, if you discover one of those, it will be worth a lot of money, so hang on to it. You can sell that on the Antiques Roadshow for a lot, I promise you. Uh, as well, Kings mentions another of other rulers of other kingdoms, and they all line up with other historical documents. Uh, rulers of the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, among others. Uh, meaning, when you read through First and Second Kings, you find that it is incredibly trustworthy uh, from a historical perspective. And for my money, if it's trustworthy on the facts... There is no reason to discount or dismiss the way that we see God interacting with His people, even in miraculous ways. Okay, I'm done with the Bible nerd portion. The rest of you can check back in now. Um, as we read uh, the first chapter of Kings, there is a word that to me just seems to jump off the page. It was not found anywhere in the passage that Stephen read. And in fact, this word is not found anywhere in the first chapter. Yet this word seems to be the clear theme that runs throughout this opening chapter of 1 Kings. Uh, that word is the word perseverance, uh, or as you can see the title of this message, Persevering to the End. Uh, pastor and author Eugene Peterson wrote a book on uh, perseverance, and he used this in the title of the book as a definition. Perseverance is a long obedience in the same direction. Do you see that there on your message map? You can fill that in. Perseverance is a long obedience in the same direction. 
I like that definition. It paints a picture of someone who is, who is on a journey. They are on a path, and they continue on that path regardless of what happens. When the traveling becomes hard or laborious, they keep walking. When they grow tired, they do not stop. There is a steady persistence to their walk, and they keep their commitments regardless of what they face. I think perseverance is a lost value in our culture today. It is no longer considered to be an important virtue. It's almost seen as old-fashioned. Sixty years ago, it was not unusual at all for someone to graduate from high school or college and work for the same company their entire career at the same job for all those years. Now, if someone works for the same company for more than just a few years, it's unusual. And not that staying or leaving a uh, company is necessarily right or wrong. Simply the idea of perseverance is no longer valued. And my concern is that as our society has said, this is no longer a value, we as followers of Christ have said the same thing in our spiritual lives. We, when it gets hard, fail in our commitment to the Lord. When it becomes tough, we do not continue following the Lord in the same way. When there are challenges, we just stop. Which is exactly what we see in this passage. When you read through 1 Kings, you see David, the great King David, the man who lived honorably so much of his life. And yet at times... At times like this, he failed to persevere in his relationship with the Lord. 1 Kings opens with David on the throne as king. Uh, He is very old. He is in his last days. Uh, His kingdom at this point is vast. David managed to consolidate all 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, His kingdom stretches all the way to Syria in the north, to Egypt in the south, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, and into lands far beyond the Jordan River in the east. Israel at this point was the superpower in this part of the world. And 1 Kings opens with a scene in the royal palace. In fact, in the royal bedroom of the palace. And you can just imagine the opulence that would have existed there. The grandeur of this room designed specifically for the king of this powerful nation. Gold and silver inlaid and expensive wood would have been throughout this room. Uh, The finest of windows, beautiful artwork adorning the walls. Expensive linens covering a massive bed. A bed made out of the finest cedar trees found in Lebanon. Um, Any visitor to this room would have been immediately impressed by all of its splendor. But then the camera zooms in to the grand royal bed. And there is David. King David. Who had ruled over Israel for the last 40 years. In fact, for most Israelites... 
This was the only king they had ever known. And countless stories of his heroic acts had been told. His defeat of a giant named Goliath was a common bedtime story throughout Israel. But now, the great King David is dying. And as the camera focuses on David, lying there is not the strong warrior or the powerful leader. Instead, it is a frail, fragile man. In fact, he is in such a feeble state that even in Jerusalem, a city that is in a part of the world that is typically hot and arid most of the time, David simply could not stay warm. Even with blankets covering him, his aging body simply could not generate enough heat. Then the story takes an interesting turn. Look back up at verse 2. This is a part of the passage that Stephen read earlier. Notice what the writer tells us. Therefore, because he could not stay warm, his servants said to him, Let a young woman be salt for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that the, my lord the king may be warm. So the servants suggest to King David, let's bring in a young woman to keep you warm. Which makes sense on the surface. Having someone lie beside King David to keep him warm makes perfect sense. The question is, though, why bring in this young woman? This young woman who had never been with a man before. David, at this point, had four wives. We do not know the status of all four, but we know that Bathsheba was still around because she appears later in the story. Why not have Bathsheba lie with David to keep him warm? Or if Bathsheba was unavailable for whatever reason, we also know that David had concubines. Uh, having multiple wives and concubines were not part of God's plan, but it was practiced in that day. And so there were multiple concubines who were available. Why not get one of them to lie with the king? On the surface, this part of the passage just doesn't make sense. And when I first read it, I thought there has to be more to this story. There has to be something going on in this narrative that the writer meant to highlight that wasn't just immediately clear when I first read it. And so I did a little research and I discovered that what the servant was suggesting here to King David was more than just a practical solution to David's inability to stay warm. There was a belief among the pagan nations in the ancient world that if an older man could sleep with, and I mean really sleep with, a young woman, a woman who had never been with a man before, if he could sleep with her, that somehow in that act he would become infused with her youthfulness. He would be revived. He would be young again. He would have more energy. Meaning what these servants suggested and what David quickly agreed to was adopting the values and the morals of the nations around Israel. Instead of staying true to the Lord, David and his attendants acted just like the very pagan nations around them. 
This leads us to our first truth about perseverance. You can see this on your message map. Fill this in. I'm called to perseverance when the world tells me to compromise. When the world tells me to compromise, I'm called to persevere in my relationship with the Lord. If you have followed Christ for more than about five minutes, you know that there's the great temptation to adopt the values and the patterns of the world around us, to conform to the practices and the morals of those around us rather than biblical virtues. Years ago, I received a call one day from a lady, from a girl who I did not know. Uh, She identified herself and said, you do not know me. In fact, I do not live in Macon. I live out of town. However, I'm getting married very soon at a venue that is in the middle Georgia area, and I have some friends in Macon, and I've asked around, and I've heard that you do a pretty good job with wedding ceremonies. I said, really? You've heard that I do a good job officiating wedding ceremonies. She said, yeah, I've heard you do a good job with that. I said, okay, what have you heard about my preaching? She said, nothing, nothing at all. Great, that's very encouraging. And so she gave me the date and she said, we would like to know if you'd be willing to do our wedding ceremony. And I said, yeah, I think so. And I'm available on that date. And so we worked out some of those details. And then I said, the only issue is, is we need to find a time that you guys will be in Macon so that I can do premarital counseling for you. And she laughed and she said, oh, we don't need premarital counseling. I said, you don't? Why? And she said, we've been living together for over a year now and we've got it figured out. We don't need any premarital counseling. My first comment was, congratulations on being the first couple in all of history to have it figured out. You need to write a book. You will make a lot of money if you have actually got it figured out. I said, the second issue, though, is I would like to meet with you guys. And I would like to meet with you not only for premarital counseling, but to encourage you to separate and to not live together before this ceremony. Just from now until the time that you're married to, for you guys to live in separate places. And I said it as kindly as possible. She exploded on the phone, called me a fundamentalist, a bigot, several other names that I cannot mention here in this, this time. said, how dare you judge me? I said, I'm not judging you at all. I'm trying to help you have a, a great marriage. She slammed down the phone, and I never heard from her again. And I'm sure she has told others that he's not the best at officiating wed- wedding ceremonies, and he's actually a jerk. Now, I just wonder how often we, as followers of Christ, look a lot more like the world around us than we do like followers of Christ. And I'm not talking about being legalistic. We're all guilty of sin. We all blow it. We all mess up. We all fail to live up to the standards of Scripture. However, when we do sin, do we recognize that sin and repent? Or do we excuse it and say, well, this is what everyone else does. It's okay. David made the mistake here of not persevering in his relationship with the Lord, but instead adopting the values of the world around him. The second mistake David made involved his children, which is the big story in this passage. Look back at verses 5 and 6. 
Now Adonijah, whose mother was Hagith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So we got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. Verse 6, his father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Notice what we read here. The writer of Kings, you have to remember, did not have a computer, some sort of word processing program. He didn't have a laptop where he could write every single thing down. And so what he recorded were those things that were very important. And here he highlights something that is critical to the story. In verse 6, there is this selected highlight that David never rebuked his son. He failed to discipline his son. Which leads us to the next truth we want to highlight. I'm called to perseverance when I am weary. When I am tired. Uh, David's family, David's children in particular, were an absolute mess. Uh, Amnon was David's firstborn. But Amnon had zero regard for David or the Lord. He played the part of the playboy prince. He abused one of his half-sisters. And then his son Absalom, to get revenge for what Amnon had done to his full sister Tamar, he murdered Amnon. Then Absalom decided to rebel against David, and he almost succeeded until David's forces killed Absalom in battle. And so one son was murdered, a daughter was abused, another son was killed in battle. There was actually another son named Daniel. We don't know what happened to Daniel. He may have just gotten tired of all the family drama, decided to go live with someone else, just done with it all. We really don't know. He most likely died from natural causes, but we have no idea. And so then that leaves Adonijah. And Adonijah was next in line to be king. And we see him here jockeying for position as king. And David at this point is old. And David is tired. And the text tells us that David simply failed to discipline his son. In other words, David gave up in fulfilling his God-given duty to parent his children. There had just been so much rebellion, so much family drama, that David did not persevere. Um, Beyond just parenting, it is easy to grow tired in following the Lord, uh, to grow weary in pursuing Him. I mean, maybe you're a high school student or a college student, and you're trying your best to follow the Lord, but everyone around you is saying, why are you doing this? It's crazy. Why do you go to that Bible study? Why do you spend so much time going to church? Why are you serving in your church? And after a while, you just grow tired. You just grow weary. Here is my encouragement to you, and I have lived long enough now to see this truth playing out in the lives of so many. When you grow weary, when you grow tired, keep pursuing. Keep running after the Lord. Even when you do not feel like it, keep chasing after God. Finally, here's the last thing. I'm called to persevere when I have failed. I'm called to persevere when I have failed. Adonijah makes a serious run at the throne. He almost succeeds 
And as the oldest living son, he had the right, he had that claim. And if David had remained quiet pretty soon, people would be saying King Adonijah rather than Prince Adonijah. But then Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, one of David's wives, enters the royal bedroom. And she says to David, remember the promise you made. Remember the oath you made, both to me and to the Lord, that your son Solomon would sit on the throne after you. Nathan the prophet comes in after Bathsheba, and he confirms that what she has said is true, that Adonijah was making a run at the throne. And if David did not do something and did not do something quickly, that Solomon would not be the next king. David had made this commitment. He had made this oath, and yet he had failed in so many ways. Here at the end of his life, he had grown tired and weary, was not disciplining his son. He had adopted the practices of the nations around him. David had absolutely blown it. And so you get to this point in Kings, and there is this huge tension. What would David do? Would he step up and would he fix the situation? Would he be faithful to his oath? Would he honor his promise? Or would he say, instead, I have messed up too much. I have blown it too many times. I'm just giving up. Look down at verse 28. This is at the bottom of your message map. This was not part of the section that Stephen read earlier, but notice what we read. Then King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. Here at the end of his life, King David steps up and he does the right thing. Here at the end, David perseveres even though he had failed so many times before. He rises up out of his feeble state and he honors the commitment that he had made. An oath that he had sworn to Bathsheba and an oath that he had sworn before the Lord. David keeps his promise and appoints his son Solomon to become the next king. One of the greatest enemies to you following the Lord faithfully is you failing to follow the Lord. Did you get that? Let me say it again. One of the greatest enemies to you persevering in following the Lord is when you fail to follow the Lord. When we fail, we so often say, well, I've blown it. I've messed up. God is angry with me. I just need to give up. I just need to quit pursuing the Lord. And here is what the Bible teaches us. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22. That God is a God of second and third and fourth and infinite chances. And when we repent, when we say to God, I am sorry, when we recognize that we have blown it, God says, good. 
Now go and run hard after me. There was a woman caught in adultery. A crowd brought her to Jesus and said, she deserves to be stoned to death. Jesus knelt down and he began to write something in the sand. And he said, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus looked up and the crowd was gone. It was just Jesus and this woman. And he said to this woman, no one has condemned you? No, sir, no one. Then neither do I. Go now and sin no more. In other words, your past does not define your future. Go and run hard after God. There was a tax collector named Zacchaeus. He was considered to be a sinner because he worked for the evil Roman Empire. In fact, he bought the right to collect taxes for a nation that suppressed the people of Israel. He was considered to be a sinner and unrighteous until he encountered Jesus. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, your past does not define your future. Go follow hard after me. Jesus met a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, a woman who had a very checkered past. She had been married five times. She was shacking up with a guy. Jesus met her and offered to her living water and said to her, if you want to drink from a cup where your soul will never thirst again, I am offering it to you right now. And guess what? Your past does not define your future. Drink from this cup and run hard after me. What about you? Your past does not define your future. And if you blew it this past week, this past year, this past decade, there is always the chance to recognize that sin, to repent of that sin, and to run hard after God. That is his call on you today.